would uh, do that, that's awesome. Revelation chapter two, Revelation is not a hard book to understand. I'm not gonna do that to you again this week. Also, I'll be, sorry, taking that out. We've been going through these letters, the, uh, these epistles. Paul obviously wrote some epistles to some churches, but Jesus wrote seven letters, seven epistles to seven churches. And we are uh, slowly but surely trying to make our way through those. And we are in Revelation 2, verse 12, which is the letter to the church in Pergamos or Pergamum, depending on your translation. And to the angel of the Lord, uh, angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells, verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Father, would you give us wisdom today? And... Um, you said that your word would be a light to our feet, that it would illuminate our path when it's dark. And we live in a dark world and we look to your word for that illumination today. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Pergamum, kind of a weird name for a church, ain't it? And it's one of those passages where you read it, you're like, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Ugh, what? I, just thought you, I thought you said it wasn't hard to understand. The doctrine of Balaam. Pergamum was a church that was located just a little bit north of Smyrna, which I guess in this day would be Antioch, but for our context. And it was a church, a city that was politically the center of the entire area. It, it would have been like, uh, like our, our Washington. It was the capital of Asia for the Roman Empire. It, it was a very powerful place. It was located high up on this hill that was overlooking down below. It's like it raises like a thousand feet out of nowhere. Pergamum, a center of government, a place where Caesar worship, where emperor worship was solidified. It was where we call them political rallies today, right? You know, the, uh, the signs and the, you know, forward or wh whatever those are. And that, that was the place where a lot of that was centered. If you were an emperor, that's where you went. And they held up their little signs and they worshiped you. And during the periods where they were actually literally doing like, like worship, like calling themselves deities, that's where it was going down. So it was like 
marked by these towers that were on the outside, like a lot of cities in those days, the towers that overlooked that would be protective of the people in the cities. There, you, you go there today, I've actually got a friend over there right now. This is a picture that came from over there. But they, they still have, because we're gonna have Glenda's number up there still, won't we? They still have those towers on the side where they, were, where they would look down and be able to protect their people. It was a center of government. The towers of government were there. It was also a center of religious worship. The cults, the mythology, the Greek mythology that started with Babylonian, which we're gonna get into next week. We're excited about that. Just in time for Easter to figure out where that came from. The worship of the myth, uh, mythological gods, Ishtar, which is their Aphrodites. Where they were all centered there. It was this very wicked religious place. One of the places that you can actually still go and see is the temple of Serapis, which was their uh, worship of the, get the right one up here, of the gods of the underworlds. And you see the towers there as well. And when you see in this passage, it even talks about a guy named Antipas, which is a guy that was mentioned by name. In fact, when Jesus was glorified, went up to heaven, the only name that he ever mentions after that is Antipas. By name, he mentions it by name. Antipas was actually martyred in that temple, the temple of Serapis, where they were putting incense in, and Antipas in 92 AD, which was three years before this was written, was called in and commanded to light incense in the bull, this brazen bull, and to declare that Caesar was Lord. And Antipas said no. And the way that they executed Antipas was inside of what is called a brazen bull. It was bronze, hollowed out with a door in it, and they would put the victim inside of it, tie them up, and roast them alive. Antipas, even in his death, it's recorded praying for the people that were there. And they said, even in that time, you guys didn't turn your back on us, on Jesus. And you didn't turn your back, you didn't lose your faith on me. This isn't just a history lesson, incidentally. The towers of false religions, the towers of government, of power, were centered in Pergamum. And if you look at what the word Pergamum means, we've talked about the letters that the name of the city has to do with the problems they were struggling with, and it would also have to do with the prophetic future of church, it has to do with us personally, and the word pergos, pergos, means tower. You're welcome for my penmanship. Tower, and the word gamos, when you break it down, means marriage. And so it means, the name means married to the towers. Married to the tower. Weird name, isn't it? But when you unpack what it's discussing, what, what I think the Lord was saying to the church at Pergamos, was it wasn't just relevant for them locally. Because he's saying, I will come to them and fight against them. It wasn't, not everybody in the church was into this, but they were starting to buy into this idea that I need to look to my government for power, that I, nationalism, and if I just 
I'll, look, all you gotta do is just say Caesar's Lord. That's it. Pledge allegiance to the Caesar. That's it. And, and I don't have to. But it was deeper than that. And so they were not looking to. And there were some of them that were starting to fall along those lines. There was, of course, mixing in the religion that they had of the day, the, the mythological religions that they were working around and surrounded them. So locally, these guys, even with the persecution, there were some of them were starting to falter. But not only did it speak to them locally, it also spoke prophetically. Remember Smyrna, or Ephesus was the original church all the way up to like 95 AD. And then Smyrna came along and it was the crushed, the persecuted church, which was 95 to about 312 and Pergamos, it comes into play in the year 312. And if you remember from your, uh, your history books, from your, well, for some of us it was a lot longer ago than others. It was 312 AD where 10, it was the end of 10 waves of amazing, intense, brutal persecution against the church when a guy named Constantine comes along. You guys might remember Constantine uh, being played by Bill from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in the movie Constantine. That's the wrong Constantine. Constantine was an, a guy that wanted to be emperor. Domitian, all these guys had been, they're long gone. But a power vacuum has formed. And so a war is unfolding and Constantine is not doing well. And at the Malvian Bridge, Constantine and his troops are there. They're trying to figure out how are we going to get this, how are we going to conquer. And he looks to the sky, and he sees the sign of the cross, and he hears a voice that says, in my name, conquer. And Constantine says on that day he became a Christian. If you look to history, there are those that say he did, and there are those who said that it was just very politically convenient. Because what group of people was out there that he really needed on his side, other than a bunch of Christians who were persecuted and abused, saying, well, that's our guy, we're about to have our guy in the White House, I mean in the palace in Rome. Our guy, we'll get him in there. And in my name, conquer. And Constantine, backed by a new band of not only his warriors, but Christians who wanted their guy, defeated and he becomes the new emperor, and at that point, the Edict of Milan, which had, uh, of, uh, of toleration, which had just been order, uh, issued, which was, we're no longer gonna persecute Christians, and Constantine comes in and he orders the Edict of Milan, which was saying, not only are they not going to be persecuted anymore, it's not just toleration, it's elevation. And an interesting thing happens. It becomes the official religion, it becomes the law, it becomes, all of the rules and the popes and the things. It's interesting timing this week, isn't it? To be on a chapter like this, because during that era is when a lot of the traditions that we know today were being born. Because Constantine made it the law. Our forefathers were very wise when they argued for a separation of church and state, weren't they? And I'm always very careful to remind myself when I want whether it's I want prayer in school, I want Bible back in school, I've been to the DMV, have you? When bureaucracy gets involved with anything, it gets ugly. The last thing I want is bureaucracy teaching my children about the Bible. They were wise from that, there was a separation of that and what we saw was when it became part of the government, woven into it, 
that it wasn't long before in my name conquer meant go and conquer and the crusades would come and government, the tower of government, married to the government, married to nationalism, a church that was born that would go in his name and conquer theocracy, never a good idea. I truly believe that when Jesus returns, when he says that the government is on his shoulders, we're gonna be able to say, yeah, look, we have tried this one every which way but loose, and none of them worked. So your way is the way. Whether it was dictatorship, socialism, Marxism, capitalism, all of them, democracy, they all, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God because the problem isn't the system, the problem are the people, us. We're fallen, we're sinful. And when you give us power, God's not a glory hog. It's not like he needs more. He just knows that it's gonna short you out. Putting water, if you're in the bathtub and you throw the toaster in it, no good. Because everybody has a toaster in their bathroom, right? Just us? It doesn't mix, it'll short you out, it freaks you out. There was an article a, few, a couple years back in Newsweek magazine, which is obviously more left-leaning. Uh, it was actually still a magazine then. Um, comparing Bush and Obama and basically saying, hey, these guys are the same guy. And it made his, uh, it made his left-wing guys going a little angry. But when you looked at what happened and it happened to him, it happens to anybody that goes to the White House. And this is a quote that they had made, but it's like, you go to the White House and you say, I'm gonna change the White House, I'm gonna change this, and then what happens is you get in there and there are these forces at work and you don't change the White House, the White House changes you. These forces at work is what the quote was. I believe those forces are the sovereignty of God. If God needs us to be a prosperous and successful nation, he will allow that and create the circumstances under which that'll happen. If he needs us to go by the wayside because he's got some stuff he needs to do, that will happen. The sovereignty of God, it's why it's not about voting and praying that my candidate wins, it's praying that his will be done. Because our hope can't be in the tower of nationalism. It, it just can't be. History teaches us many things and one of the things it teaches us is that great nations come and they go. And so if my hope is in that, if my hope is in this thing, this government, this style, and everybody, if you go to most countries, even the most abusive, they're still very, they have a lot of national pride. We spend a lot of time in Haiti. A lot of national pride there. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like, I just got my peanut butter stolen. I have 200 bucks just to get out of the airport. But it's, that's what they know. And we think, yeah, but our way's better, but we've killed 55 million babies in the past 30 years, 40 years. Is our way better? God's way. Be careful when we get nationalism, we tend to stop looking at the reality of where we are and forget that we're just passing through. We are aliens, it says. We are occupying until he comes. And when I remember that, then my allegiance is no longer to the government tower, but to Jesus, who is our strong tower. Proverbs 18 tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. So he would say to them locally, don't do that. It says to us now, don't put our faith in the tower of government. But then he goes on to say that weird thing about, if I could find it, the slide, that weird thing about the doctrine of Balaam. You guys hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Do you guys remember Balaam? 
the story of the talking donkey, and it becomes a, a national syndicated show called Mr. Ed, and then it goes on to, it's the talking donkey, but what was ha- happened is Israel was approaching a nation called Moab, and the king of the Moabites was a guy named Balak, and he's like, these guys are about to destroy us, we've gotta do something. So he calls upon this prophet, this enigmatic guy named Balaam, who was a Gentile, he wasn't Jewish. And he calls on him and after a series of events, he brings Balaam. And Balaam, it says that he was hired for money to curse the people of Israel. And you remember the story, maybe you don't, it's in Numbers 22 if you wanna go there later. 21, 22, 23, it's like a three or four chapters in a row, but it says he stood up and he, and he looked over and he, he tried to curse them and, he, and blessings come out. Interesting, by the way, is that when he looked over them, it says that he would look down and he saw the people of Israel. And if you are a Bible student, I would love for you to go home and, and, uh, and study and, and read up on this and see uh, if the Lord shows you anything, but here's what Balaam would have seen when he looked down. It says in Numbers 2 that they would camp. In the middle would be the the tabernacle, the tent where the Holy Spirit dwelt, and right around there were in a square would have been the Levites. And directly to the north of the Levites in rows and stacked up would have been the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, Manasseh, depending on which emphasis syllable you use, and Benjamin, and there would have been 108,000 to the north. To the west, was Reuben and Simeon and Gad at 151,000, tented up in rows. And to the east was Dan and Asher and Naphtali at 157,000, almost the same amount on both sides. And to the south, there were more, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun at 186,000. And when he looked down, what he saw was a cross. No wonder he couldn't curse them. Pictures, there's nothing accidental in the scriptures. As he looked down over that, he couldn't curse them. And finally he goes home, but not before he tells Balak, look, I can't do this, but here's the secret. Here's, I can't curse them, but they can bring curses on themselves. And he encourages the Moabite women to get gussied up and to go and to marry some Israeli boys, to be with them in the biblical sense of the word. Brought them in, and before you know it, that immorality became idolatry. And they brought the curses on themselves because of mixing, because of mixing their faith and the other faith, the false gods and the worship, the, the doctrine, the sin, the mistake of Balaam is, is mixing false religions, idols with God, with the one true God. Interesting, side note, there's obviously sexual immorality involved in that. They are two sides of the same coin, and here is why. Idolatry is adultery from God. If I am committing adultery, then I am sinning against my wife. Incidentally, if you're not married, and you're, if you're committing fornication, that is adultery on credit. <laughs> You're just paying it ahead of time. You're putting it on your card. It is still adultery. I am going to someone else to get what I should be getting from my wife. Emotional, 
the whole thing. They're the same thing, and that's why you see them so often dis- together, because they're two sides of the same coin. And what he was saying to this church is that, hey, you're, be careful, because these religions that are there, you look up on the hill, and you're going to see this throne of Satan, which is the throne of Zeus, which incidentally was taken to Berlin, East Berlin, in 1915 or 20, just in time for Hitler's rise to power. The throne of Satan, it says where Satan has his throne, that's false religion. These religions of Zeus, of Aphrodites, which if you were to look across these, you see Eros and Aphrodites. This all started way back in the day in the Genesis, the guy named Nimrod, Tammuz, and you begin to see all these names. This Babylonian religion, it just worked its way through history into the Roman Empire. And so Ishtar is Aphrodite. She would later become known that in the Greek as the Babylonian religions came into Rome. Ishtar, which incidentally is where we get our name Easter from. We'll talk about that next week. So don't go to that tower. Don't marry that tower either. Tower? It was Babel. Remember Babel? They built a what? A tower. Because they wanted to do this on their own. They wanted to have their own deal, their own plans, their own stuff, their religion. We don't need God. And from that was born, said the Babylonian religion, started in a tower. And he would say to them, to this church, and I believe he would say to us, conduit locally, don't marry another tower another idol, a false thing. When I look at that, and I really have wrestled with this for the last couple of days when I sort of started to realize what he's really saying, because I, I just have, I'm like any other person here. I have a, t- a proclivity towards idols in my life. I heard a pastor tell a story of being in India and he said he was walking down this path and he, they come across this, uh, this little chicken thing and, uh, where they had just sacrificed some chickens. Uh, if, if you know, Eric and Tisra just got back from India. They have gods for everything. And they like to party about that loudly outside the Faley's window. But he says he was walking by and he sees this chicken and he asked the pastor's wife who was with them, hey, you know, started the conversation, have you ever been to America? And she said, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I have, I have, but I don't want to go back because the amount of idols and idol worship, it sickens me. I can't stomach it in America. Standing by the, the chicken sacrifice, whacked off for the chicken god, right? head off and done. And he's saying, you have too many idols in America. But the, the chicken, the, the chicken god. But you have too many idols. And then she went on to say that you, your idols are entertainment. Sports, and you build these giant stadiums so you can come and, and worship them. Said so you guys have idols of your television entertainment. You, you go into your living rooms and all of your chairs are arranged so that they can face the TV where you can worship. And I, I'm reading, listening to this quote going, oh, this really is not good news. And here's the thing. You can tend to all of a sudden start to beat yourself up or start to justify. Neither a good idea because neither are helpful but to let the words pierce my heart and think, okay, where are my 
idols. Uh, idol test for you this morning. If you've got a pen, you can write these down. Here's, how you, here's your, idol, uh, your idol detector. What makes you mad? If I can't get my phone to work, if I can't find my phone, what makes you mad? What are you sacrificing for? What makes you mad? What, what are you sacrificing for? What worries you? Whose applause do you long for? And when you begin to answer those questions, you begin to see, oh, those are idols in my life. Here's why I say that. I'm betrothed to God. That's, he uses the picture of marriage. It's the closest picture that he could come up with for us is a picture of marriage. To say that that's the picture of me for you. And he would go in the book of Hosea and actually tell a prophet, go and marry a harlot. Idol worshiper. And tell him to, and Hosea, don't leave her. Let her do this and be who she is and you stay with her. It's so confusing. If you're Hosea, this kind of stinks. I feel like I got the short end of the stick on this God. What God was doing through Hosea was telling a story though for me and for you about what it means to get into idolatry, sexual immorality, two sides of the same coin. What it looks like in a relationship, not with Hosea and Gomer, but with God and me. His whole life was telling a story of me, of my lack of faithfulness to the Lord, of me going to get something from something else, from somebody, someone, something else that I could have and should have, and quite honestly need to get from God from Jesus. I can't, it doesn't work anyway. You end up empty, and if you look into Hosea and the, the way it worked, it talks about, and you'll continue to chase that, and it won't fulfill you, and this, and then ultimately what happens is, he's saying this is with Israel and a picture for you and I, that, and you'll come back to me. He allows us to have these idols, because what we ultimately figure out over the years is, none of it worked anyway. What we were seeking for, what I wanted, what I desired, was, was you, Jesus. And when I tried to get it from those, that thing that makes me mad, that thing that worries me, that thing I sacrifice for, that, when I tried to get it from that, it didn't even work anyway. And he's patient and he awaits. And this is the best news of all. What did Jesus, he said that there was one reason uh, that, that was allowable for divorce when he's talking to some Pharisees, which has been taken way out of context, but he says there's one reason, and it was adultery. He gives himself the out for me, and then he doesn't take it. He's that good. And he's not a big buzzkill. It's not that he doesn't want me to have fun. He's, if you're going to get those things, and you're going to be miserable anyway. And to the church of Pergamos, don't go there. Don't chase those things. They're going to go away. They won't fulfill you. He would say to them to be careful of the, you've embraced the Nicolaitans and that doctrine that they had, and we talked about that last week, that the word in Nicolaitan, Nico, was the Greek word where we get victory from. If you're wearing Nike tennis shoes, that is born out of that word. 
Nico. Laetan is the word that speaks of and be, is the word we get our word laity from. Just go ahead and spell it however you want to. Um, <laughs> he says, because of this idol uh, worship, this mixing together, you're married to another tower, that what will happen in your life is you'll embrace. He says, likewise, because of this, thus, you're going to embrace your, this, this thing with the Nicolaitans, which was victory over the laity, it's religion. It's the, if you've ever been in a church like this, you know what I'm talking about. But any church where a pastor, you've got to have a pastor tell you if you can get married or if you can do this or that, and you're seeking permission for decisions in your life, that's power over people. It's abuse. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus hates it. The whole purpose of the new covenant was to take that out of the way. I don't need a pope. All due respect, I love the robes. The ring, it's gonna be on an episode of Pawn Shop at some point, or Pawn, what is it, Pawn Stars. But, because he's gonna go and come, and, and we just saw it. I mean, again, all due respect, but the pope was infallible, retired. Uh, is he still infallible? It's the Nicolaitans, because now there's the centralized government ruled by the papal, this, and it's, there's a lot of good things that they're doing, but in the name of the Nicolaitans, where there's power, over the people, and it's not just in Catholicism, it comes into our day, it happens in churches all over America. When someone wants to just commandeer authority over your life, and you can't do anything without them saying you can do it, it's Nicolaitan, he says, because of idolatry, you're gonna end up in the Nicolaitan thing, it's just a bad slide into nowhere good. What does all of this mean, Darren? I'm glad you asked. Because it's not just about church history. It's not just about the church as a whole. It is about us locally. You and I personally. That I can fall under this Nicolaitan thing. I can get under this doctrine of Balaam thing, this being married to idols so easily. And it happens when I start to try to build my own towers, my own thing. If you've got your Bible and, and you would turn with me to the book of Luke, I'd love for you to see this. Jesus would speak of this very thing when he would tell this story in Luke chapter 14. He was on his way to Jerusalem to die. It said that he set his face like a flint. He is going to do what God has called him to do. And it says that he's, he's getting there. Like, I mean, he's about to die. This is one of his last sermons preached. And he says in verse 25 that great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I got to tell you, I, I'm not his disciple then. I love my mama, my family. So what is Jesus saying here? He would go on to say that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he laid a foundation... 
and is not able to finish, and all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him and who comes against him with 20,000? If not, verse 32, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all uh, that he has, he cannot be my disciple. I've wrestled with that scripture for, it's one of those bookshelf uh, scriptures. You know what I'm talking about? I don't get that one. I'm going to put it on a shelf and come back to it someday. Well, that someday was this week. He says, if you want to build a tower, this is the cost of that tower. Your family, your lives. But Jesus didn't ask us to build a tower, did he? He is our tower, our strong tower. Someone should write a song. Follow me on this. See if you can smell what I'm stepping in. The cost of a tower is too much. I can't afford it. I'm going to go broke, bankrupt. I can't do it. The Tower of Babel wasn't finished. They couldn't. God confused the language. They couldn't. It wasn't able. The tower can't happen. He's saying if you go to build a tower and count the cost, you know you can't build it. And it's a good thing because I didn't ask you to. I, the name of the Lord, Proverbs tells us, is a strong tower for us. When I'm building my own tower, a tower whether it's of idolatry, when I'm trying to seek out those things that the Lord wants to give me and I'm doing it somewhere else, I'm gonna go bankrupt. What happened to the prodigal son? He went bankrupt. He was out of cash. He was out of equity. And the Lord, I believe, allows us to go down that road, and we've all been one shape or the other on that road, till we come to the end of ourselves and remember and realize that I, I can't afford this. I, I could never, and in Jesus, just like in Hosea, it says, and I'll be waiting for her, for Israel, for you. I'm waiting for you. For when you figure out that that wasn't it and it wasn't that my love, that my mercy will extend to even you and to me. I find this to be really, really good news. Because I've got a lot of idols. And I slowly and surely and systematically want to begin to remove them. I've removed so many, it seems, over the years. And it's like, oh, there's another one. And we have a picture of how we can do that, how we can be what the Lord said we could be. If you remember in Genesis 35, you don't have to go there, you can go later. When Jacob finally arrived, he had been a long journey for him. And it had started with Rachel stealing idols and they were, you know. But it says that once they were there and God had delivered him and it says that he took all the idols, all of the false gods, all of those things, and in Genesis 35, it says that they buried him at the tree. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Isaiah tells us the picture of a tree almost always in the Old Testament is a picture of the cross. That when I'm ditching my idols, 
the thing that makes me mad, the thing that worries me, the thing I'm sacrificing for, the thing I'm chasing and pursuing that isn't Jesus, that all I gotta do is take it and bury it at the tree, bury it at the cross. It's so simple and the mercy is so amazing and the love is so overwhelming. And my hope would be that for you and I this morning, that we would take whatever those things are that are in our lives, not out of a harsh hammer down deal, but out of a, it didn't work anyway. It just made me miserable. And to believe the promise that if I will endure and I will not buy into the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and I will not buy into this Balaam and this mixture and this immorality and these idols, that he says that I'll give you a a white stone with a new name on it, a name that only I know. And man, I love that because I gotta tell you, you could go into any Starbucks in this area and swing a dead cat and hit 10 people, five that think I'm a genius and five that think I'm an idiot. My name has got problems and so does yours. And he says, I'm gonna give you a new name. If you'll do away with these idols, every time I, I think back on it, most of the, op- the times I had bad reputation, bad name, I had a, there was an idol involved that I was pursuing. I worked in an industry where our entire job was to make somebody into an idol. An idol is one dimensional, there's no personality to it, there's no, it's just this certain parts of it. If I'm on the phone talking about an artist and I'm like, oh yeah, he's this and that and they were great and this, this and she's really got a temper and this, that. I, I can't make them all, their whole character known because I only need them to buy a part of their character, the idol. I was listening to an interview by Russ Taft, I don't know if you remember Russ, but he talked about how his journey of the last 40 years, that there was a point where he realized where what they were saying about him, what they believed about me, he said, wasn't true. And so I began to hide and I was scared and I didn't want him to know who I really was. One of the things we used to tell our young artists was don't believe your press. We're gonna write this press release, you're gonna sound awesome. Don't believe it. Idolatry is not just wicked to our own hearts, it does wicked things to other people. It destroys their own hearts as well. We can't take it, we can't. And so the mercy of God would say to you and I today as idols, if we're idolizing someone, if we're idolizing something, that if you will avoid that and run from it, that your name, idol, even if you're trying to become famous, what is it about? It's about my name being known. If you're Saeed and you're in prison, it's good just to know that somebody knows your name. But what if you're one of the quarter of a million people in Haiti that died? It was Stalin that said, I can kill one person, it's a tragedy. I kill a million and it's a statistic. Nobody knows their names anymore. But he says, I'm gonna give you a name. So Antipas, I'm saying to you, you, I know your name. And he's saying to you, I know your name. And the suffering, you rejecting these idols and walking away from it and giving everything for me to follow me, the sacrifices that you'll make, I know your name. And I'm gonna give you a new one, one that I'm gonna give you, it's our name, it's like our pet name. Because I'm coming for you as your bride. And if you'll be faithful to me, I'm gonna give you a new name. And if you're not faithful to me, go bury your idols at the cross. Go bury them. 
at the foot of the cross. We get an opportunity to do that this morning with communion as we're going to worship here in a moment. You guys could join us. I would encourage you to remember that and to listen and ask the Lord today, hey, what is it that's making me mad? What are some idols like Rachel that I've stolen and taken away and I've got them inside of me? Right here in this bag. I've got them hidden in my tent. They're under the camel thing that I'm sitting on. What are they? What makes me mad? What makes me worry? What am I sacrificing for? What are things that I can do away with in my life? That I can bury at the tree and so that I like David, at the end of his life, or at the end of the, the great wars that he was involved with, he writes a song. I'm really hoping that I brought in here, yeah, 2 Samuel 22, 1, write it down, you can go there later. But he said this, that uh, David spoke to the, uh, I spoke these words to the Lord. His enemies had all been conquered. Saul was gone. Philistines, all these, and he's finally able to go to the Lord, and he says that this was the song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and the hand of Saul. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my rock in whom I will take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, the stronghold, the tower. And in verse 17, he says, he sent from on high and he took me and he drew me out of the many waters and he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Verse 29, skip down, he says, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you, remember this, I can run against a troop and by God I can leap over a wall The way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield over all those who take refuge in him. If you read further into that, you'll see he actually says that he brought me out into the open. David didn't run back to the strong tower to hide. He was in the open because God was his tower. God was his protector. And for you and for I, if we are in our strong towers, this church building, (laughs) cafeteria, He never asked us to build a tower and go inside. He asked us to go to their tower, to go to the gates of hell that shall not prevail against you. Those gates are locked from the inside. We're to go there. There is no passage in the Bible that tells us to lock ourselves up and and board ourselves out from the world. We get to go to that tower. And just like David, to be able to say, I'm out in the open now, God. I'm going and I'm following you, trusting that you're my shield, you're my strong tower, not this tower that I can build, but I don't even have enough money to build anyway. And all along the way, I got this mental picture in my mind of me on a horse and like all the idols just falling out of the saddlebag as I'm going. When you're riding a horse fast, stuff just starts falling out. When you're running into battle and mission, stuff just starts falling. We were on a horseback riding retreat. I think you were on this one with me, Jeremy. When I lost my wallet, it bounced out of my saddlebag. We found it. But things just start bouncing out. When you're going into battle on mission together, when we're on mission together, the idols just start falling off. And there are those that are stuck under the saddlebag, a bird of this. Sometimes we gotta get off and go to the, the cross, bury them, bury the ones we pick up along the way. 
knowing that our goal was never, it can't be, it won't be ever how awesome this life on this side of is gonna be, but the other side when we are standing in front of him and that white stone, which incidentally in that day, a white stone was a, 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 a verdict of innocent. If you were in a jury trial, the white stone was innocent, the black stone was guilty. He's given us the white stone because you're clean. All the idols gone. Us burning our idols this side of heaven has nothing to do with whether or not I'm gonna get to heaven. It just has everything to do with whether can I live that that fulfilled, abundant life that he's promised me. As we're worshiping, I know we've gone long and I I don't apologize. But ask yourselves those questions this morning. I know that Kim has some stuff on her heart that she wants to share about the song of overcoming and I believe that they're tied together because even my unbelief can be my idol. I'm holding on to that. I don't want to get my hopes up too much because I don't want to get them let down. What kind of crap is that? That's my crop. Let's worship him. What Darren's been saying this morning is just totally resonating on my heart, and it's such a God thing that he even spoke on when he did today. But um, last year was just a big battle, running into battle. Um, I'll spare you the long details, but my family went through a lot last year. I went through a lot last year. It seemed like every month we were just being thrown out on the ground with something else that just seemed to just keep us down. And really running into battle, even the beginning of this year, like Darren said, things just started falling out in my life. And God brought me out in the open. And I've been going through a Beth Moore Bible study, and one of the things that she talks about is that it's easy for us to bring idols in some senses and say, Lord, this is an idol that I have in my life. I really want to get rid of it. I want to bury it at that tree at the foot of the cross. But it's hard. Beth Moore challenged us. What is it that you don't believe about Jesus? Bring that to him. And I didn't want to pray about that. (laughs) I didn't want to find out what my unbelief was and it's been a couple of a couple of weeks a few weeks since I've been um kind of wrestling with that and just last week I was doing my bible study and um Beth Moore had us filling out all of these scriptures on healing and um I had I don't know maybe many of you know that I have been dealing with severe gallbladder issues for like four months and it's just like a continuation from last year and just those slow little beat down things that I know a lot of you are facing in here and have been for a while. I see your stories. And um, in the middle of doing that Bible study, I got to the passage. One of the scriptures to look up was the woman who had been bleeding for a long time. And she said, Lord, all I want is to touch the hem of your garment. All I want is to be touched by you and to touch you and to know that you're God, that you can make me whole. And uh, at that moment, it just felt like the Lord picked me up and put me in that woman's shoes for a moment. I felt the desperation. I felt a deep longing for Jesus. I didn't want to embrace my unbelief anymore. I didn't want to embrace idols in my life. I wanted Jesus. I 
if only just to touch the hem of his garment to experience the grace and the power of Jesus being the only God in my life. And at that moment, I felt this heat just pass through my body. I did not grow up charismatic. It was weird. But, and I'm sorry, I don't mean that in an offensive way, but I just felt like, I just felt the heat, this heat come through me and I was like, whoa, this is weird, you know, and just a really, I just thought it was an intimate moment between God and I, and four or five days later, um, I, uh, we had our small group, and they had, like, comfort food night, which if you have gallbladder shoes, you can't eat fat, like, really much at all, and I ate something with cheese in it without even thinking, and I said something to my husband, I was like, you know, my stomach didn't hurt, and it should have. And I didn't even think about it. And I went through the rest of the day and I was kind of mulling over like how I felt so good. And not only like physically, but just in my heart. And, and the next morning I woke up and I didn't have pain again. And I was like, man, Lord, this is kind of cool. You know, like, thank you. And the Lord immediately brought back that moment and that scripture verse. And the Lord said, we will overcome but the blood of the lamb and the power of our testimony i have healed you and this is your testimony you tell everybody because my idol was unbelief i believed god could heal people if i prayed for them but god has never healed me when i prayed for myself and i was like that's okay god you i'll just pray for other people and i don't need to pray for myself i know you're not going to heal me it's a lie a limited god and God just totally flipped that upside down. He touched me. There's other things that I won't share with you that were a mess in my body. And God has lined everything up. And I don't know why. I didn't even pray for that. But if anything, God is showing me his power. He's put Revelation 12 on my heart that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. What is your testimony? When we are beat down by the things in life that make us feel like we can't get up again, we have got to remember our testimony. What is it that God has done in your life? What is your testimony? What is that thing you remember that you remember saying, I will never ever not believe in God again because he did this for me? What is that? We have to hear that. We have to share that. That's how we will overcome in Jesus' name. And we'll overcome by the blood of the lamb. That blood, like Darren's been talking about this morning, it's our life source. It's our God. It's our salvation, our redemption, our healing, our love, our freedom. It is everything that God has given us that we need to be whole. And I say all that this morning because I want to encourage you this morning. We will overcome with Jesus. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the power of our testimony that he has given us. And that's what this song talks about. Like we will overcome. Church, we are not beat down. God has not forgotten us. You may have been in a really long journey in the past year, maybe even longer than that, but Jesus has not forgotten you. He wants you to remember your testimony and claim the blood of Jesus over your life. So I want to give him glory this morning. I am so grateful for what he's doing in my heart and in my body and in my life. And I want us to proclaim together, build our faith by hearing each other's stories and sing this song at the top of our lungs. We want to get rid of our idols this morning. Just let them go. Like Darren said, there's... There's no payoff to that. We want to be free in Jesus to be who he called us to be. Let's stand and sing together.